everyone, and welcome back to Motherkind, the show that is going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more confidence, clarity, and self-awareness. This week's episode is all about money, how we think about it, how we feel about it, and how we plan for it. You are going to learn why so many of us struggle with our relationship with money, why having all the financial tools in the world won't matter unless you've done some deeper digging into your beliefs around money first. You're going to learn where most women go wrong with money and budgeting and what Claire, our expert, thinks is the best way to set up household and family spending. We also discuss the cost of living crisis and what to do if you're worried about your family or someone else's. Claire Seal is a mother of two. She is the creator of the My Frugal Year Instagram account. She's the founder of the Financial Wellbeing Forum and the author of three books. Her latest book called Five Steps to Financial Wellbeing is amazing. And Stylist Magazine said it is a book that we all need to read. I loved this episode and it is such an important topic because I think when we feel financially well and empowered in our lives, I think it impacts every other area in our life. Here it is. Welcome, Claire. I was thinking about you this morning and you are one of those people I feel so connected to. I was like, I've definitely chatted to Claire on the podcast, but this is actually your first time. So a very, very, very big welcome from me and and the Motherkind community. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I was thinking about you a lot as I was having my breakfast in preparation for this. There's these three words that I love and I love them together and they are, we hurt and then we heal and then we help. When I thought about you, I really thought you're such a powerful example of that, of how you've alchemized so much hurt and frustration and fear and anxiety, and you've healed so much within yourself around that. And now you help so many people. So I wonder if we start there, let's start with that hurt, like right at the start of your journey, for want of a better word. How did all this start? It feels like a really long time ago, even though it's only three and a half years. I had really struggled with money for a really long time, like most of my adult life. I didn't really understand it or how it works, really. So I had the kind of basic knowledge that everyone gets like thrown into adult life with of basic maths, but I didn't really understand anything about the way that like my upbringing had shaped my relationship with money or anything like that. And I also, for the whole of like my childhood and early adulthood, had quite severe undiagnosed ADHD. So I had this really like push and pull relationship with money. I was very, very impulsive and it was really fraught and a real push and pull. So I'd be stuck in cycles of kind of like, right, I'm going to budget this time and I'm going to cut everything else out. And it would be really punitive. And to be honest, I was stuck in a really similar cycle with food as well. I've spoken quite a lot about the parallels between my relationship with food and my relationship with money. And quite often, you know, a lot of people will come in and be like, I've just had a huge light bulb moment because they're quite similar in a few ways and that you can't just opt out of either of them in the same way that you might be able to with other things that you might use to try and self-soothe or regulate your emotions. 
but I didn't have any understanding of any of this at the time. And I just thought that I was terrible with money, no matter how hard I tried. And I was really trying. But then also I had a baby at 25, which was not planned. My husband and I, now husband, had only been together for a really short amount of time, even though we'd been through uni together. So we knew each other quite well. And we sort of had to like throw together a family life and I wanted it to be perfect. I wanted to prove to everyone that even though it was an accident, that it wasn't a mistake. And to kind of give my baby the same as all the other babies were getting, even though their parents were not in their early 20s and earning 16 grand a year. That was in 2014. And then I just had no idea. I had no idea about the impact of childcare, how terrible maternity pay was. It was kind of just a combination of like mindset and circumstance that culminated in this huge sum of personal debt that just grew and grew. At one point, and this is sort of March 2019, so in the meantime, we'd got married and we'd had another baby. And I just was a nervous wreck, like I wasn't sleeping. I was trying desperately to plug these ever-growing gaps in my budget. To sort of put it really simply, like the math had stopped mathing quite a long time previously. So it was just really, really tough. And I had a bit of a like joint turning point and breaking point on the phone to my bank. It was like halfway through the month and the woman on the end of the phone, I was in an unarranged overdraft, which is the kind of bad one where you used to get charged a daily fee. And the woman on the end of the phone asked me when I'd be able to come back within my limit. And I said that it was going to be the end of the month when I got paid And she asked me why, which no one had really asked me before. And I just like heard myself say, there's just no money left. And I I really, saying it out loud, I just realized that I'd come to a point where something really needed to change. And it was quite lucky that it sort of came at that moment because my eldest son was about to start school and my husband had just got a job with a slightly higher salary, as had I. So there was an opportunity there. I guess I did what any sane person would do and set up an Instagram account to document it. I don't think I can really like still access the reasons why. I think it was just an impulse. And I'd seen quite a few people talking about money starting to talk about money on Instagram and I thought that's really interesting because Instagram and that like insta lifestyle was one of the things that really was quite damaging for me in terms of like comparison of like where I lived and what my children had and what we're able to do as a family it felt almost quite sort of poetic to try and use that as a tool to like maybe call some of that out in myself and hold myself accountable but I didn't really expect for it to resonate with so many people at this point I just felt completely alone in that situation I didn't even really think that other people struggled with money necessarily 
in that like same emotional way that I did but yeah apparently it's lots of people so there's so many things that I find fascinating and one thing that I do want to touch on is I suspect there'd been many times in your journey when you'd said this time it's going to be different and I think we could be talking about money but we could also slot in like you said food drinking compulsive shopping we could slot in so many different things that we do and I think so many of us get into that cycle and we think I know I need to change this and I'm wondering what was it that actually made the changes stick that time did you have a moment of surrender was it spiritual moment because I think that's what is so fascinating when people like you are able to actually get that sustainable change I genuinely think that it was a combination of having somewhere to like, especially in the early days, I just used my Instagram account as almost like a journal. It was a combination of having that outlet and then later the accountability of some people who were invested and the catharsis of knowing that other people were in the same position or had been in the same position it felt like I wasn't alone anymore. It felt like there was a community element. But I think the main thing was that the first time that I messed up, I just kept going rather than going back to the drawing boards and throwing my hands up in the air and saying, oh, yeah, I knew I was right. I, I can't do this. Yeah, I was more adaptable and I didn't quit every time it got hard or quit every time I made a mistake. Like I know that you talk so much about perfectionism and I genuinely think that carrying on after you've made a mistake is a bit of a middle finger to perfectionism. And after I'd done it that once, it felt much easier to carry on because I was like, oh, wait, like you can still make progress even if you've had a little blip. So I think that was like the real key factor of just accepting that it doesn't have to be perfect for you to make progress. And it's still something that I like struggle with in lots of other areas of my life, but I did manage to nail it down (laughs) for that one factor, I suppose. It's so interesting as well, because perfectionism is so linked to shame. When that voice of like, like you shared that voice of saying, you're so shit. Why can't you figure this out? That is the voice that stops us carrying on. Like that self-compassionate voice, that kind voice is actually, it's counterintuitive because we think that that kind voice will make us go, oh, can't be bothered then. But it's actually the kind voice that keeps us going. Tell me about your experience with the link between money and debt and shame. I know you think and talk a lot about the internal critic and self-compassion. And I think that's such an important piece of the puzzle that is just not talked about enough around money, is it? I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's really hard. We're all our own harshest critic. But I think also feeling shame is within the locus of our own control, you know, largely because it's a feeling that we have. However, That shame that we feel around money is so mirrored by like judgment in society. 
again, it's like a real act of rebellion to decide not to feel ashamed about something that everyone is telling you is shameful. And there is such a narrative about debt that it's shameful. It stops people from seeking help. And in the very worst case scenario, that can be literally lethal. It's literally costing people their lives. And I couldn't count on two hands the amount of times that I've been asked to go on a radio show and then the host has hounded me about why did you spend more than you earn and stuff like that and I just make a point nowadays because I am genuinely past that point of shame of saying I refuse to be ashamed of this anymore I've been through that and I really understand the factors that were at play and it's only by actually understanding what happened and being accepting of that, that I've been able to avoid getting into that sort of trouble again. I think we have a bit of like a glorification of being at rock bottom and like bullying yourself into change. You see it everywhere. I mean, I hear it on CEO podcasts. I see it in like lots of self-help and personal development books of like, you hit rock bottom and then you decide to change everything about yourself. And I just don't buy into that. It doesn't work. Like you are who you are. I really think in order to create meaningful change, you have to have like some self-empathy and learn to understand yourself. Because if you're trying to make yourself behave in a way that doesn't come naturally to you, at some point there will be something that's got to give and so I think it's about like developing really good habits around what works for you everyone's different but yeah I think we can sometimes like glorify shame a little bit most celebrity autobiographies I remember reading Russell Brand's autobiography when I was like a teenage fan of his but now thinking about it it's like he must have been encouraged to make like the worst days of his behavior sound absolutely terrible and absolutely depraved so that he could have this redemption story. And I just don't think that we need that. I don't think that we need to drown ourselves in shame before we're allowed to be redeemed. I think that we learn to understand our behavior and then change what needs to be changed. I always say you can't hate yourself into healing because that hate, self-rejection, that is the very thing that probably is causing the behavior that you want to change. Yeah, exactly. So you have to love yourself into your healing. And I really resonated with what you said about community because I know when I first started healing and changing loads of things in my life, I couldn't do that. I had to have others like you had with your community, you know, that care and that love, love you into your own change and healing and I think it's so important idea that we cannot hate ourselves happy it just doesn't work it just doesn't work and study after study after study shows us that now not enough people understand that because the rock bottom to healed journey that involves all of that like salacious detail is so much more like widely publicized or it seems sexier for want of a better word when actually like the way to 
make meaningful change in your life, I found doesn't have a very sexy narrative. It's about understanding yourself, making mistakes, learning from those and embracing that like non-linear path of progress as well. Because so many of us expect that once we've had that like moment, that turning point moment, then it has to be a real straight line when actually it never is for anyone. Yeah, it's fascinating. And that Russell Brand example is a good one, you know, because that first book, you know, yes, he got off drugs and alcohol, but as we all know since, he has been struggling with so openly. And I think he talks about that. I think you're dead right. We need to move away from this idea that there's this moment and then we're fine. And that is just not my experience and it's not your experience at all. It's a daily ongoing commitment, which is what I really heard you say. Actually, I had the accountability. I had to make mistakes and keep going. And I think it's that commitment that in my life has really made the difference of when I've actually been able to create sustainable change. And just trying to also distance yourself from the morality of it a little bit as well, because also with so many of those journeys, again, like press will always encourage you to frame it this way is, I was a bad person before and I'm a good person now. And that also just isn't the case at all. I have really come to accept that although I made some mistakes that had a really big knock-on effect and caused a lot of stress, actually, I can honestly say that I was doing my best I was doing my very best at the time. I was doing the best I could with what I had. And I think self-forgiveness is really important as well. And not buying into that narrative of like, okay, I was bad then. I'm good now. Exactly. I totally agree. And when you think about that person before who was you know, one of my favorite sort of parenting people talks about being good inside, like a good inside person who didn't have the tools, the understandings of what was going on at an emotional level. What do you now know? What were the beliefs that you unpacked about money? What could you see was driving that that you didn't have that awareness of before? I think in a lot of ways, I was quite stuck with regards like my value in my job. So I had started on like a really low salary and then I only felt like I was valuable enough in the workplace to sort of ask for very small pay rises when I moved jobs. And yeah, that maybe one day I might be able to earn an okay salary. And I worked really hard but was always kind of willing to accept less. And that's taken quite a lot of unlearning, especially since I've been self-employed and setting my own rates. So in the beginning, I really would always compare what I was charging to like what I earned in a day or an hour when I was an employee and stuff like that. So that's definitely changed in like how I see my value see the value in my work but also I think when I was growing up in my household my mum and her then husband were in business together and he managed all of the finances and didn't do a very good job 
And so there was this like real ebb and flow of money in our house. So either there was loads or there was none. But always just when things got really tricky, like a big invoice would be paid and then it would be back to normal again. And I think that really taught me that there's no financial security for you, Claire. Money's always going to be up and down. But also that no matter how bad things get, there's always going to be a bailout. So I had to unlearn both of those things and like being self-employed now, I'm trying to do the antithesis of that. So the way that I have things set up, I like pay myself a monthly salary. So always the money that's coming in is constant. But also from that, I think when my husband and I first got together, we had to rush into having like joint finances because there was a baby. But I think I was very averse to letting him have any control because my then stepdad had caused so much financial angst. And so I probably needed help. I mean, like managing the finances, household finances, actually studies show that that tends to fall to women because it's part of the domestic load that most women are carrying. I probably needed some help or needed it to be collaborative, but I held it all really close to my chest because I was really scared to relinquish any control because I'd seen a debit card get rejected at Sainsbury's when my mum had just done a full shop because he'd been moving money around behind the scenes and not told her about it and things like that. So I had to heal that part of me as well of just trusting that you can do things together and you're not making yourself vulnerable necessarily, but also always having still some money that's mine (laughs) as well. And I think this is what I love so much about your work and why I feel like you are really different to other you know, financial experts out there is because you link this idea of finances and emotional blueprints, I would call them, so closely because I guess at that time, someone could have given you all the tools in the world, right? But if you were still running these really deep-rooted beliefs that there's not enough, that's going to be driving your behavior. That's what I love about your work. And, you know, it mirrors my own in so many ways that we have to start with, unfortunately, because it's not always pleasant, isn't it? We have to start with asking ourselves those questions. What did I learn in childhood? You know, how has that impacted my behavior? What are my beliefs around this? And then we can start to use some of the tools. I just think without doing the deeper dive, the tools are going to have such limited impact, right? Is that your experience as well? Definitely. I certified as a coach earlier this year. Obviously, lots of coaching models are pure and pure coaching is just solutions focused. And I think probably that does help sometimes some people with money, especially, you know, some people don't really have loads of deep rooted money issues. I'm not sure I've met any of them yet, but I think my coaching model has to involve a look back in order to move forwards because there are so many of those beliefs embedded and you know you're talking about emotional blueprints and I think people don't necessarily associate anything to do with your like emotional life with 
money because it's seen as this thing that's like clinical and it is just maths and it exists outside of our kind of sphere of emotions but just to like flip that idea on its head if your emotional blueprint or your map of the world influences everything else in your life from like how you parent to your relationship with food to your romantic relationships your friendships all of that stuff how could it not influence your relationship with money which is one of the biggest constant stresses in most people's lives so I think if you're not going into the emotional side of it then just see a financial advisor but I think what most people need to do is to work through things that are influencing their behavior because it's behavior change with money that is going to result in noticeable change in your circumstances usually. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively and therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. Yeah, I mean, it's all about belief change and then the behavior change, isn't it? So let's move on. So we've talked about the importance. and Hopefully everyone listening has really got the importance of some of those questions. And I know that that in your book, some of those coaching style questions are, you know, what were my beliefs growing up? You know, really unpacking some of that. But I want to make sure that we also cover some of the practical tools. I mean, there's so many out there, isn't there? Sometimes I feel quite overwhelmed with the number of apps, planners, budgeters, what are the things that you have found and within your community as well have really helped you to manage that practical side? The keystone for your money management or your relationship with money is some form of budget. And some people don't like that word. You don't have to call it a budget. You can call it a spending plan. Like all it is, is a plan for your money and all your budget has to tell you is how much is coming in accurately how much is spoken for so how much is going out on essentials accurately and then what you have to do is decide what you do with the rest of it in principle it's really really simple and I think sometimes there's like a tendency to overcomplicate it or look for like a magic budgeting technique that is going to revolutionize it but I think just stick to the simple principles and then think about your learning style or your style of managing other things in your life and then you can sort of start to think about what way you would like to budget so if you're an avid paper journaler and you still keep a paper diary and everything is like manual and on paper then maybe keep like a paper budget and there's loads of budget planners that you can get for that 
Otherwise, you can use kind of a spreadsheet that's, again, really manual. That's what I do. Or you can do it all in app. I think it's just really important to recognize what works for you in other areas of your life. And then sort of quite naturally, that's probably the way that you want to start looking at keeping your budget. The really difficult thing about budgeting is sticking to it. So I would really recommend trying to follow some of the like habit building practices from something like Atomic Habits in order to kind of build that in. Because what usually keeps us going at the start with budgeting is motivation. But as Dr. Faye Baghetti says, she's the brain doctor on Instagram. She's brilliant and she's very, very good on motivation habits. Motivation is like really fickle. (laughs) It disappears really easily. So if you're like tired or hungry, it doesn't have a huge bandwidth. So if you need to use that motivation for something else, like your budgeting might fall off. Your motivation is easily bored. So as soon as it gets a bit boring, your motivation is going to run for the hills. So it's really important while you're feeling motivated to in the background be building up really good habits because they're stored in a totally different part of your brain. And they're kind of like your backup for when your motivation starts to ebb. So I'd really recommend doing that. Another great thing is to try to emulate the sensations that we used to get from paying for things with cash like you give the money away and then you don't have it anymore trying to emulate that by kind of getting spending notifications from your bank or I use an app called Snoop which tracks my spending and I can tag it all with the same categories as there are in my budget so I can keep track of what I'm actually doing versus the plan I made but if we can find ways to kind of emulate that because it's a whole (laughs) other podcast but the way that we were all kind of especially millennials were brought up managing cash and now everything's digital and you don't get the same recognition that you're swapping money for something because you're not doing that physical thing of handing over the cash So yeah, I would really recommend thinking about the tools that work well for you in other areas of your life and mirroring that in your financial toolkit, definitely. I wanted to ask about joint finances, because this is something that I think so many of us, just like you described, didn't have an amazingly healthy model from our parents or other types of family setups that we might have had. And I often feel like before we get married or start cohabiting or have children, we should definitely be forced to go on some sort of, you know, like this is how to healthily manage your finances together. Because I find it really complex. Both of us came into our relationship with different amounts of money, different beliefs about money, different spending desires, different ideas around value and frugality. And I find that whole area really complex. And I'm wondering, is there a model that you've seen having, you know, I imagine looked at this that really works? in terms of joint accounts, individual accounts, how do we navigate all of that? Different people really have strong opinions on this about what works, like different strong opinions. So some people really advocate for keeping everything separate. Some people really believe that there should just be one big pot. I tend to fall somewhere in the middle. And it's definitely the model that we use. So we have a joint account, which is like 
both of our responsibilities and we each have our own separate personal account. We each get paid into our personal account and then we each put an agreed sum of money into the joint account. I earn more than my husband, so I put more in. And I really think that sometimes when there's a huge discrepancy between partners that people still cling on to the fact that it's fair if you put the same amount in. That isn't true. I believe in proportional contributions to your family because even if the person who earns more is putting more in, they're still going to have more left just for themselves. So we kind of do it that way and we try and make it so that we each have roughly the same amount that like stays in our own accounts that we get to spend and the idea is that it's guilt-free on things like gym membership or you know like non-essential things but things that we do for ourselves the reason why it should in theory feel guilt-free is because we know that everything for the family is being taken care of in our joint account and also from that joint account so that includes like all of our living costs but it also includes like savings for our children come from that joint account any family savings come from that joint account I find it really helps to have that separation because it does help with the like guilt and I think lots of people who are in like a family situation with children or like a partnership sometimes you can feel guilty about spending anything that's not for the good of the family but I feel like if you know that everything's been taken care of and there's a really clear line between family money and your money it can really help with that guilt around spending so yeah somewhere in between and that two tier three account model I think has worked so well for us and has tended to be something that other people talk quite favorably about most things I'll ask my friends about or you know an expert but in this area like how do you manage your money as a family I feel like it's hugely important and just not talked about enough so thank you for talking about that there might be some mothers listening who don't do paid work so their work is childcare, which as we know is unpaid and when I speak to those mothers particularly about spending on themselves their guilt is like next level because they'll be like I'm not contributing anything financially have you got any words that can help them make that transition to you know it's so linked to worth isn't it and valuing our contributions that are non-financial have you spoken to mothers about that and what can you say to help so I had a coaching client actually who was struggling with something like this and I always think you don't have to raise it with your partner but really ask yourself how would your partner be able to work and earn the money that they earn if you were not taking care of the child that you share because I think that can be a really important reframe for people take yourself out of the equation how are they going to work and earning that money if you are not there and then you can maybe try and visualize a bit of a shift in you are making a contribution to your partner's earnings just as surely as if you were doing half of their job for them. 
So I think in terms of the mindset and the guilt, and I've spoken to people who feel like guilty because they're having to ask for money. And I think if you can possibly set things up in a way that means that you're not having to constantly ask, so you have an agreement in place where it's automated or it's always done on the first of the month or whatever just like if you were getting paid from like paid employment then that can avoid some of those feelings so again it's like really about communication but yeah no one should be feeling like they don't earn that money therefore it's not theirs and it's just being given to them out of kindness like you're playing an absolutely vital role in the function of your family and your partner's ability to earn that money absolutely I'm really conscious of time because there's something super important that I want to talk to you about which is the cost of living crisis because there will be mothers listening to this who are in that place that you described at your start of your journey that feeling like there's that weight on their chest they're waking up every morning with a very deep inhale and anxious about the winter, anxious about the next bill, anxious about childcare costs. You know, everything is just feels to me like it's spiraling. And I'm sure you've got the stats to underpin that that I don't have at my fingertips. So I'm wondering if someone is listening, feeling that way, or in general, how can we support each other, particularly as mothers, through what feels like a really challenging time for a lot of people right now? It's really, really tough because in a similar way to when the pandemic hit, we're all in the same storm, but we're not necessarily in the same boat. And the only way to really overcome that is to be honest and to try and just inject a bit more honesty into your discussions about money. And if you are someone who where this kind of big increase in the cost of living is still detrimental you know it's an inconvenience and it may be causing you like a little bit of worry but you're still managing fine just being mindful of how other people might be struggling and things like you know if you're arranging meetups maybe do like an anonymous sort of doodle poll of how much people can afford to spend. Like that's a really nice sensitive way of making sure that whatever you're planning is affordable for other people. If you do sense someone is struggling about money, like see if you can find a way to raise it in like a gentle sort of almost conversational way pinning it to sort of news story or talking about how worried you are about it because quite often people do need to talk about that but they're maybe not as willing to open up about the fact that they're struggling with money as they would be about the fact that they're struggling because their baby doesn't sleep and I think a lot of it is just about communication information sharing as well so if you've seen like a really good tip or something like a grant that's available to be applied for or anything like that just like sharing that information within your group chat or on Facebook page that you're part of as well as kind of offering the support that you know the practical support of offering for someone to come around for dinner if you suspect that they're really struggling 
that's a much more sensitive way to do it than kind of to go in there with, do you want me to buy some food for you? Do you know what I mean? It's about just being really sensitive and being open and communicative. And then on the other side, if you're someone who is struggling and you're worried about reaching out to anyone about it, I would say that when I first started talking to my friends about money and I thought everyone else in my friendship group was doing really, really well. And a couple of them were, but I realized that there were a couple of people who were also really struggling and weren't able to talk about it. And that made everyone feel better. So it's a much easier time in some ways than normal to try and open those conversations because it's so prominent in the news. So trying to open some of those conversations and being kind of emotionally there for each other and also kind of being receptive of help as well because that's really difficult and that's something that I found almost impossible when we were really struggling is when there was help available I didn't feel like I deserved it or was able to take it so just remember that like this is something that's being imposed on you by this like geopolitical situation and the political situation and economic situation in the country where you live this isn't something that you've done you're allowed to use the help that's available to you what else comes up when you think about that person who might be really struggling there are lots of organizations out there who are working really tirelessly to help families who are in need so I would say like big organizations are great you know people like the Trussell Trust although it's shameful that we need food banks but also on like a local level maybe look at what's available in your community there's a brilliant charity in Bath called the Nest Project which is focused on families with children under five and there might be something similar locally some of the things that they offer is you know they have kind of a free shop where people can go and look for anything that they might need for their children alongside that they run a cafe where you can go and get a free cup of tea and a cake and your child can play they run a play group as well so have a look out for little smaller organizations who are doing that really important work in your area because the actual physical stuff is only part of what they offer you know it's kind of like friendship and community and I think that's what we all need to be embracing at the moment are those community support networks that maybe sometimes you have to look for them in the first place you know we don't have any family that lives locally and I know that loads of people are in that situation as well but you know you can even in the absence of family locally you can build or become part of a community locally and it really in so many ways has been shown to help not just in kind of getting the stuff that you need to get by but also in providing like a bit of emotional support and some company as well yeah such a good point there are so many amazing organizations out there doing 
incredible things. I'll link a few of my favorites. Maybe send me some of yours as well and we'll pop them in the show notes for people. I always ask the same question at the end, which I know you know because you are a listener of the podcast, aren't you? But I cannot wait to hear your answer, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I think it would just be the reassurance that you don't have to be perfect all the time in order to be a good mother. I always like compare this to where the bar is for being just a brilliant, amazing dad and where the bar is for being a good enough mother. One of the things that made me so guilty, feel so guilty about having this real financial struggle was that I wasn't doing a good enough job for my children. And I think in the early days, I spoke to a few people who kind of made me give my head a wobble and see that I had provided them with like a safe home. They always had enough to eat. They always had warm clothes to wear and that that was enough. And I think that mostly mothers do their absolute best and it doesn't have to be perfect. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's so important. I was listening to something yesterday. I'll link it. There's this beautiful meditation and it said, you only really need three things in life. You need shelter, food and connection. And I thought, well, I've given that to myself and I've given it to my girls, so I'm winning. And it's just such a powerful reframe in this world of, you know, more, 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 more. So thank you for connecting us just to that, just to that truth. I think that's really powerful. And of course, if you're not able to give one of those three things to your children, you are also a good enough mother. Mm, That is absolutely true. Whatever we're able to give, we're good enough. Thank you so much. I knew I'd adore this conversation and I absolutely did. Where can someone find out more about you? I suspect lots of people are going to be seeking you out given what we're all going through. So where does someone find you? The easiest way to find me is on Instagram and my handles at my frugal year. But also if you want to sort of check out some of the content or inquire about coaching or anything like that, there's also the Financial Wellbeing Forum. So the web address for that is www.thef for Freddie, W for Wellies, forum.com. Everything's linked via my Instagram. So just come find me there. Thank you, Claire. And thank you for who you are in the world. I know you've helped so many. So thank you. Thank you for having me. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on.